when I was a kid, I wanted to either be a librarian or a taxi cab driver when I grew up, and now I am a sociology professor. Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Neda Mahboula. Dr. Mahboula is a sociologist and the Canada Research Chair in Migration, Race, and Identity. She studies the racialization of Iranian, Syrian, and other Middle Eastern and North African newcomers in the United States and Canada. She's currently an associate professor of sociology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and is among the graduate faculty at the University of Toronto, St. George. I was blown away by her first book, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race, and I'm thrilled she's made the time to speak with us today. Without further ado, welcome to the pod, Dr. Mavula. Hi, Ben. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So I got to ask, what inspired you to write this book, The Limits of Whiteness, in the first place? Um, you know, it was born out of a bunch of observations I'd made as a child growing up with um, parents who had immigrated from Iran. Uh, I was born in the United States. Um, and yeah, like, you know, it was just basically a bunch of observations that I made, but I didn't quite have the language to put it all together or to trace like what the pattern was and all of these things that I'd been noticing. But as it's like so common that, um, you know, if you're lucky enough to go to college and to be empowered with information and tools and vocabulary, then, right, you can start to piece together the puzzle. And so um, I think that's a really common story for a lot of people. Um, and it's certainly my experience, too. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I had an opposite situation growing up in Los Angeles, where we have the largest Iranian community outside of Iran, is I grew up going to Beverly Hills High School, which you, you write about my community quite a bit, and I want to get to that in a moment. But I grew up seeing like, oh, I'm a plurality here. And it wasn't until I went off to college and saw, oh, no, I'm, I'm pretty different. <laughs> I'm definitely a minority. Um, and so I'm curious, when you first started writing the book, did you go in with certain concepts you knew you wanted to hit? Or did it, did it kind of, did new ideas form the more research you did? Yeah, um, that's an awesome question because I think for me, the light bulb went off like that classic aha moment was um, when I was a sophomore in undergrad and I learned about the phenomena of turn of the century racial prerequisite cases. So that was something that in high school or before, like I didn't even know, right, that citizenship as a process in the United States had been conditional upon the applicant, right, being what they considered a free white man. Um, of course, you know, we had learned certain things about colonialism and the legacy of slavery. So I knew certain things about how the law, right, literally saw people as subhuman, like you had the three-fifths compromise and other ways in which African Americans were historically treated as 
diminished second-class citizens within the U.S. And so that I had somewhat of a framework for, but to learn about racial prerequisite cases where it wasn't people who were forcibly brought over into chattel slavery, like African-Americans who were treated as second-class citizens, but that it was, you know, sort of voluntary migrants who had come to the U.S., whether it was for, you know, economic reasons or political asylum, whatever it was, right, that some of those people were found to be lesser than and ineligible subjects for citizenship, and that those decisions, right, were made because some immigrant groups were found to be not white, so they were not black, right, and they didn't have a kind of second-class citizenship claim that they could make, but they also did not meet the criteria for a first class sort of citizenship claim based on whiteness and they were excluded. That was like brand new information to me. And it was actually the first time that I saw, um, you know, characters in history who had roots in the kinds of places where my family was from. So you see, you know, Arab applicants in these legal cases. You see Armenians in these legal cases. And as I talk about in my book, there's this like shadowy idea of the Persian or the Iranian person who gets brought up in these cases. So even though at the turn of the century, they weren't necessarily here in great numbers applying for citizenship, they show up as this like reference category in these other groups as claims. And so I was blown away that like I had all these janky kinds of observations I had in my life, you know, about this kind of in-between or liminal position that Iranians and other groups from that part of the world may have within the broader American racial hierarchy. But then to see these discrete examples of where that was like so plainly talked about in brutal language by judges and lawyers, um, you know, a hundred years before, that unlocked something for me. And that was like a tremendous light bulb moment that then impacted the questions that I would go on to ask and the answers I was looking for. Yeah, that's something that really resonated with me is you, you have this awesome ability to weave in anecdotal evidence and stories from people you spoke with, with the systemic ways that prejudice and discrimination have become codified against Middle Eastern people, especially Iranians. And I remember, based off what you were just saying, correct me if I'm wrong, I remember there was one case you cited where the person was basically hurting their own case because they were saying, no, I'm white. Like, <laughs> I'm not, they were, they were, they were um, suing for discrimination, but then couldn't, couldn't swallow the pride to say, no, I'm not white, I'm, I'm an other. Exactly, yeah. Um, so the case that you're describing uh, was from about 10 years ago and it involved a um, Iranian-American truck driver who um, was really mistreated in an interaction at like a truck stop, like a gas station with a manager and a security guard who was an off-duty police officer. And he was, um, you know, treated very roughly and violently and without, you know, he was sort of like held against his will. And there was all kinds of stuff that really met the kind of broad-based criteria that we have for racial discrimination. Um, and I go into the book about a lot of the details why, like, even though, for example, the truck driver himself, you know, said, like, I self-identify as white, and Iran comes from the word Aryai or Aryan, and, you know, he sort of goes through a lot of these things that we now call the Aryan myth. Um, you know, even despite him identifying as white and saying these things in his deposition on the record, there were still these like legal 
loopholes where if he could just say out loud in the court that he acknowledged that the other people in the scene, so the police officer, the manager, that they saw him as not white, that still would have been enough, right? For the judge to say like, okay, this meets the criteria of the Morris test and therefore we can move forward with it as a racial discrimination lawsuit. But yeah, this this gentleman, like he kept saying, right? Like, you can't ask me what they thought of me. You have to go ask them. And so as you're saying, right, it's this sort of, unwillingness or I would also say like there's a kind of radical defiance almost um, that he shows in court in a way as a as a reader or as someone along for the journey you just kind of want to pull out your hair and be like dude like can you just (laughs) you know read this for what it's worth and like do the expeditious thing of just like saying what's happening so that your case can move forward but um in a way it's frustrating, but also I think there's something to it, right? Like, what is that radical defiance? What would it mean for him, right? To like admit that or to, um, yeah, to, to let this play out in a way that he didn't want, so. Yeah, it, that, that whole concept of playing into the Aryan myth and taking Iranians taking pride in identifying as white, we're not an other, we're, we're white, it reminds me of the Maz Jobrani 2010 census video he did were in an effort to get people in the United States on their census form to list that they were other and then write in Iranian as opposed to writing in white or checking the box for white. There's one of the characters he plays that just goes, we are white, just check, just check white, we're white. Um, and he plays all these different Iranian uh, caricature characters that, that just all want to avoid checking the box for other and writing in <laughs> Iranian. But also from from a reader's perspective, I really enjoyed the way you weaved in, you know, a court case along with a really, you know, heartfelt story from an Iranian teenager. So how do you, when you're actually sitting down to write, what was your writing process like? Because academic books really often go over my head and they're, as, as you heard in the podcast I did with Sarah Saidi, there were definitely times we had to consult the dictionary because you introduced us to new words. But overall, we, we were able to get through this in a pretty accessible fashion. When you actually went to sat, when you actually sat down to write this, what was your writing process in terms of weaving in facts with stories? Um, yeah, that was pretty incredible to listen to your last episode and hear you guys talking about my book. That was really <laughs> surprising and quite amazing because um, I think no matter what genre you're writing in or what Um, field you work in, right? It's so important to define your audience. And so um, the audience that I had in mind just for the most um, sort of strategic purposes for my career advancement had to be other academics, you know? And so um, although I had other ideal, you know, sort of figures of an audience in mind, I really had to be conscientious to like serve the primary audience, which would be, you know, the people in my field who would be reviewing my file for tenure and promotion and those sorts of things. And so it's really validating that um, people who left their undergraduate days behind, right, but are still (laughs) like such curious, interesting human beings would like pick up the book and read it without having to like, you know, sort of come to it in an academic setting, like that it was assigned for a class or something. It's like amazing to me that, that people are reading this and you're not in college right now. Um, so, um, that's super cool, but yeah, the writing process, um, it's interesting. And I appreciate that you're someone who 
understands the craft of storytelling. And so you're picking up on something that I think when I talk to other academics, they don't point it out, you know, that there's this sort of interweaving of like statistics with legal cases, with more sort of anecdotal storytelling. Um, and the only way that I think that piece of my process came together was because of like, um, you know, that first of all, like this was a long-term project. So not only have I been just like collecting weird observations my whole life, um, but, you know, in a kind of measured way, like I had the space to think about this while I was a master's student and a PhD student and in the first few years of my career. So in a very intentional way, I was like collecting evidence for 10 years, right? And I, mm -hmm. on a practical level, had um, just the like standard um, program that you get in Microsoft Office called OneNote. Do you know it? Yeah. It's like one of the tools I think nobody ever clicks on. You know, you got your Word, your <laughs> Excel, your PowerPoint, and then there's this weird thing called OneNote. Um, but I happened to open it one day in grad school and I realized like, oh, okay, this is kind of like a scrapbook or just a place where you can kind of organize things into binders and it could be images or text or hot links or whatever, you know? And so um, I just started to kind of create like a binder. And so I would dump like weird, legal cases and that's really where the concept of racial loopholes from my book that came out because I kept finding like employment discrimination or housing discrimination or sort of like interpersonal street level hate crime type stuff it would just like pop into my social media feeds or it would come across my desk as a news item and I would just like dump and drag things into one note you know and then I had like different you know, basically tabs for the things that ended up becoming the major themes or the major chapters of the book. And I sort of sat down by 2015. Um, that's when I was really writing the book in earnest, like a first draft of it. And um, I would basically like look at the narratives of the young people who had participated in my study and something in their story would like trigger a memory like, oh yeah, there was a case in Chicago, right? Where like, a young man was assaulted in the hallway of his high school. Let me go to OneNote and find that. And so, yeah, it was just kind of being, um, being kind of intentional about collecting material in a place. And then um, it was very handy to be able to corroborate, you know, and validate like the things that young people had told me with evidence from other corners of the United States. Or, you know, it didn't have to be like a one-to-one -one match, like oftentimes, the character in the antidote would be young and then I'd have evidence of like, what does that look like played out when you're an adult, right? And the stakes are a little right. bit different and you have like a job or, you know, like, so <clears throat> there are ways that um, this stuff, it really like, um, my goal and my hope is that it ended up fleshing out, even though, right, like the interviews with young people, um, they're a major like evidentiary basis of the book that um, you also have, you know, sort of the voices or the whispers of other people, whether it was like people a hundred years ago in history or people who, who show up in the news record or in the legal record and police filings and that kind of stuff, you know, you have, you end up having like Iranians of many different backgrounds, ethnicity, religion, age, race, skin tone, you know, like, and so yeah, even though the like interviews focused with young people, 
I think there ended up being like somewhat of a holistic argument that I can make about a more diverse group of people too. Right. Your process, I mean this in, in a great way, your process reminds me of a really precocious stand-up comedian who's just jotting down, jotting down notes. Then you look back and you have this notebook that now you have a set or in your case, a book. Um, so as you're, as you're putting together these court cases and, and these different laws or, or judgments that have come out that kind of systemically codify the, the prejudice and discrimination we've talked about against Iranians, what, what is the solution to reversing and overcoming some of these? Because, you know, one of the ones you mentioned was how the city of Beverly Hills put together a commission for, on, on the architecture of the city and ultimately came to a point where they banned columns, which for people in L.A. know that's a hallmark of many Iranian homes here in the community. You know, how do you how do you get past that? Because that that is a very subtle, subtle way of discriminating, but it is still discrimination in its own way. Yeah. I distinctly remember when I kind of started to put the pieces together about this. It was like towards the end of my PhD, I had to turn in like a final draft of my dissertation to my committee members. And I had this um, incredible historian and sociologist, this guy named George Lipsitz on my dissertation committee. Um, you know, this is like a founding figure in American studies. And so American studies is this cool discipline where you're connecting a kind of social science approach with a humanities kind of an approach and you're doing a lot of interpretive work and so I really like was thinking about George a lot in that last couple months of dissertation writing when I came across as I mentioned those like kind of snarky um posts on websites like curbed and this was like in full-on yeah. that moment right where like gawker and like all those other websites like that was a very like strong voice on the internet um and so yeah I've you know, saw these like posts that were getting a lot of traction online about ugly Persian houses. And, um, you know, it was sort of like a hop, skip and a jump into the comment section to figure out like, oh, it's not just that people are like talking shit on the internet, you know, but that this um, has actually played out in like boardroom settings and in closed door meetings and even open door meetings of um, Beverly Hills' city council. Um, and so, again, it was just this kind of like following the breadcrumbs kind of a thing, but um, to connect it to the concept in the book that I'm talking about, which is like aesthetic racism, we have like all these different forms of racism that we talk about in sociology, like colorblind racism or, you know, um, systemic racism. I was thinking like, well, this racism is really like this is people are calling this ugly. They're saying that it's like um, it's an aberration to look at. It hurts the eyes. It's offensive enough that you would create a system of codes, right, to like force it out of your neighborhood. And so um, I thought to myself, you know, this is interesting because I can't imagine people in a city council meeting standing up and saying, like, I hate having so many Persian neighbors get them out of my neighborhood. But there was this but like excellent sort of narrative that was about keeping the neighborhood um, pure, right? That there's this like aesthetic sensibility to Southern California architecture or Beverly Hills architecture. And, um, you know, again, like this is the United States and we're talking about racial capitalism. And so this idea, right, that like even if it's 
ugly and that's reason enough to exclude some style in your neighborhood that that also has a kind of downshift effect on house prices too right and so there was this sort of alarmism about like this is going to impact um, the prices of our homes and it's going to depreciate the value of homes in Beverly Hills to have so many of these big box McMansion-y you know ugly Persian houses and so it's this like perfect storm of creating that, you know, hysteria around market values and real estate with this sort of like aesthetic racism or like, it's not that they make bad neighbors or we don't want them here. It's just their houses. Right. <laughs> um, so that, uh, that is tough to counter because you can't point to the transcript of the meetings, right? And say like, oh, this is a direct violation of civil rights code ABCD1234. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of um, more covert stuff that's being done. And so, um, yeah, I just have to kind of channel these these scholars that I really, really admire, people like George Lipsitz, who are able to take social science data and a more kind of humanistic interpretive approach to something like, you know, people's coded racism and the way that they write about architecture or talk about architecture and to make those connections, right? Um, and so what I love about George's work is he, he does all this important scholarship, but he um, also does a lot of boundary spanning work in connecting with lawyers and um, grassroots organizations and people who do direct advocacy and community organizing. And so um, I really think like when it comes to these sorts of issues, um, at the very minimum, what I can do is offer reams of evidence and a kind of vocabulary or language, but then there's that like extra step that um, I'm very inspired by people like George, right, who not only produce the material and they publish it, but they actually extend the hand out, right, and sort of go into the trenches of organizing with people. And so and to answer your question, right, it's really about um, some of us who are working in the storytelling arts or in ivory tower and the sort of university spaces right forming strategic alliances with our brothers and sisters who are you know working in these other domains that have to do with the law or have to do with policy or community advocacy right and kind of sharing tools and resources to overcome these sorts of things that's inspiring so it's basically people presenting their passion and their interests and meeting up with people who have a passion or an interest in another domain that'll help advance the cause that that resonates with me that's awesome and you know we've talked a bit about you know the united states and iranian americans in the united states you're currently in toronto you're in canada i'm very curious what have you noticed in terms of working with middle eastern and iranian students in canada and your conversations with them what are some of the big differences between people who are who have grown up or lived in canada versus the iranian americans who, you know, have grown up in the United States. What Are there any big differences that stand out at you in terms of their racial identity and what they've had to process? Yeah, I think this could sometimes be a function of like, I live in this like super multicultural city right now that is, uh, although it is segregated, it is still a more integrated major North American city than many places like LA or New York um, in the US. And so the biggest um, observation I would make about maybe my like Iranian students here or, you know, 
Arab, uh, Southwest Asian, North African students here versus in the U.S. is like um, for so many different reasons that we can get into um, many of the like um, Iranian diaspora hubs. So if we're looking at Los Angeles or Houston or wherever, like um, there you have Iranian people who are spatially kind of integrated with European Americans, with white Americans, and that becomes their like major reference category, which is not to say that all Iranians in the United States, right, live among white European Yeah, I was, I was going to say, you can, you can find the Iranian phone book and basically get all your services with the Iranian community <laughs> yeah. in LA and never um, have to go beyond that if you wanted to <laughs> that's absolutely true um and so you know also i would say like part of my interest in my book was kind of fantasizing about like what would it have been like to live in la because i have an aunt mm -hmm. that i'm really close to on my dad's side who lives like right on wilshire avenue um or wilshire boulevard um and so like <laughs> i grew up as soon as I was old enough that my parents would let me on a plane by myself, like I would just like yeah. fly to Los Angeles and spend summers there. And I'd like wander around UCLA as like a teenager and I'd be like, oh, like, could I live here? And I'd <laughs> go to the Santa Monica library and I would like hear Farsi just like in the air being right? spoken ambiently yeah. around me. And I'd just be like, this yeah. is so wild, right? Um, and so anyway, uh, yeah, you have sort of like these, hubs in the United States where it's like Iranians sort of living amongst one another or with white Americans as their like major reference category spatially versus here where um, Iranians like they're incredibly heterogeneous here like all different kinds of refugee political asylum economic migrant statuses that they come to Canada under right um, but also like you know lots of class differentiation um, political leanings, right? Like super, super heterogeneous, super, super diverse, but ultimately like they're kind of dispersed among a very, very diverse community of people here. And so young people would grow up like having as many Pakistani friends as they would like Ghanaian friends. And, you know, it was just kind of like um, their main reference category is not always other Iranians, nor is it always white Americans here in Canada. Right. Um, and so the way I see that like play out is just like the politics of like, um, not just like who you are politically aligned with and you're finding common cause with is a bit different in Canada, but also um, I find like a little bit more interesting kind of intermarriage stuff playing out where people are, and again, that's pretty much the trend in Canada overall, right? Is like people are marrying into like a really wide range of different ethno-racial communities. And um, yeah, yeah, it's just like, it's it's sort of <laughs> the pattern is like super wacky versus the US is also a case I know a little bit better, you know, but I can kind of be like, oh, okay, like show me a map and I'll show you the 10 census tracts where there's the most Iranians and I can pretty well yeah. tell you, right? Like who they're marrying, what their average like income is, educational attainment, da da da, you know, but in Canada, it's a lot more wacky. I would also just say like one more thing too, which is, um, you know, racial categories are different in Canada. And that's something I knew intellectually when I was like doing my project that became Limits of Whiteness. I knew like the way we name and label groups in the United States looks really different in other countries and they use different words and different labels and they group different people together in different boxes. But then to like move to Canada and actually live that truth was something new to me. Um, and where it 
is very interesting as a sociologist is like the reams of data that I have access to in Canada that I wouldn't necessarily have access to in the United States because Iranians are subsumed under the white category and you can only really sort of like disentangle them through something called the American Community Survey where it asks you about ancestry. So you could type in Iranian and then kind of see a little bit more. But here in Canada, in the main census, Iranians and Afghans are put together in a category called West Asian. Um, And so I can't disaggregate Iranian as easily from Afghan, but it's overall a much more fine-grained tool to understand the community. And so in fact, in Canada, when you look at um, average income in a variety of different like occupational fields, um, you actually see West Asian are the lowest paid in certain sectors, um, that they actually face significant amounts of labor market discrimination and struggle. So it's interesting to have to like figure out what parts of that are like Canada being organized differently, the, you know, sort of, there's just a lot going on, but even that level of um, differentiation that I'm able to do here in Canada is like really, really exciting because these are the issues that I'm, you know, passionate about. Yeah. I want to go back to the point you made about intermarriage because I think that is something that people in my generation are really being confronted with. In the, in the community here, which is, you know, our parents immigrated from Iran and it was normal for them if they hadn't already married before coming here, it was pretty much expected they would marry a fellow Iranian. And I think now it's getting a little murkier where I think some of it seems to depend a bit on your faith as well. So what I'll, I'll give an example. I think, for example, in the same way that you spoke with Iranians of all faiths at Camp Ayande, which is, which is a summer camp for Iranians of all backgrounds. I think you, you saw that Iranians of all faiths get, together, get along really well. And what's interesting is, for example, I think if you came to L.A. and you, and you put you know, Iranian Jews in a room with Muslim Iranians, they'd have a really easy time talking about their culture. I think an even easier time than if you put an Iranian Jew with a Polish Jew I think they actually might, I mean, they, if they're both Orthodox Jews, maybe, but I think on average in general, the Iranian Jew would have an easier time conversing with a Muslim Iranian. But I think if you asked those same Iranian Jews, would you prefer your child to marry a non-Iranian Jew or a Muslim Iranian, I think many would pick the non-Iranian Jew even though I do think it's easier for them to assimilate conversationally with people of their culture and not religion when it comes to their children's marriage. I think if you were to ask the parents, I think more often than not, they would show a preference that their children marry someone of the same religion and not care as much about the culture. What identity politics have you found within Iranians LA or otherwise, um, I'm curious, when it comes to now that they're of age to get married and they're dating, what kind of identity politics have you seen them have to navigate? Yeah, I think what you're describing sounds really consistent with my observations. Um, My own background is that um, my parents first met in Iran, but they come from different faiths. So my dad's family is Jewish. My mom's family is Shia Muslim. Um, It was like a really big deal that they got together and that they got married. Um, There was like a 
you know, significant kind of a fallout and then a coming back together of the families. But um, that was certainly not the way either side would have wanted it to go down. <laughs> and so I appreciate that, like, I grew up even, you know, among people that I knew, right, hearing things like right. I, you know, the most important thing to me would be that so-and-so marries a Jewish person, even if that person wasn't Iranian, right. you know, or vice versa. Yeah. So these are things that like I've literally heard out of people's mouths. And yet um, yeah. it's interesting to see like, where does the rubber hit the road for the second generation who yeah. has had competing alternative other ideologies or like ideas, right? Put into their brains. And so um, again, this is not like something that I've studied, but I've just from Facebook and like, you know, the people that I've met in my life, like I think I'm, uh, yeah, like there is really something to like this bright boundary around Iranian Jews in the US that like even second generation youth who like they grew up going to public schools and they had a variety of different friends and they dated even right like a range of different people when it came time for marriage like lo and behold right like somebody emerged right at the end who was like kind of like the suitable perfect person that like the family would accept you know and so again right. like i'm not talking about this as a sociologist but i'm talking about this as just like a random person who's like you know looking at the world around me and I'm like that's so interesting that I think maybe like um the bright blurry boundary distinction which comes from the sociologist named Richard Alba um uh, yeah I think there is there's a particular brightness around some of the like minorities within the minorities you know and in this case yeah. talking about yeah. Iranian Jews um that yeah like if you'd asked me 10 years ago I would have been like oh yeah like the Persian Jews I know like I know that they get a lot of pressure, but I don't think that's actually going to play out for them. They're out here in these streets, right? Like meeting other people and like <laughs> dating around and da da da. Um, but then, yeah, fast forward 10 years later and I'm like, oh no, like, and I, I don't know what the causal factors are. I don't know, you know, how much of it was external influence versus a sort of referendum people had within themselves where they said, you know, this is like really important, this piece of my identity and I want to have a family right where like that is really consistent a through line between both parents or whatever like the whatever the um reasons are right like I can't speak with any authority or knowledge about that but I'm just like yeah what you're describing I think it is like super true interesting and I'm curious because I think that also plays into the children of this generation so I should say when these when people of this generation, so the children of Iranian immigrants, uh, marries and then they have kids, I think there's going to be a really fascinating phenomena of how much of the of the parents' Iranian identity goes into these kids who are now, you know, two generations removed from Iran, basically, right? Like their grandparents may have born and been born in Iran, but they don't have connection to it beyond that. I'm curious, and you're you're a parent navigating this too yourself. How do you how do you figure out, okay, I want to, you know, teach my kids Farsi. I want them to just speak it or I need them to learn how to read and write it. How do you figure out which cultures and which norms you want to pass down? Maybe, maybe there are some that you think are excessive. Maybe you don't want to teach your kid Taruf, <laughs> which is, you know, the, the kind of, you know, a back and forth politeness a performatory politeness that's, that's traditional in Iranian culture. But maybe you want to teach them how to make Gormasabzi, right? <laughs> so how do you pick... How do you pick and choose 
which of the the pieces of the culture you want to pass down and have you noticed that broader conversation happening among Iranian parents across you know the United States and Canada yeah I think your question raises like so many important issues for me um first and foremost it's this sort of move of like are we what is the trajectory of this community over time is it going to be similar to like the ethnic Europeans like the Irish or the Italian where it's ultimately like a kind of symbolic connection to those heritages in those countries of like you know St. Patrick's Day green beer or like my nana's spaghetti sauce recipe right and this like uh, not to diminish right the value of food cultures or celebrations but in some ways right it's a it's somewhat of like a, a more surface level or shallow connection, right? That you're cultivating to, to that, that, I don't know, that identity versus right. like, you know, is it going to be like oral history traditions and storytelling and parables and things, right? That kind of have to do with like a inheritance around ethics and what does it mean to be like a good human being? And these are kind of stories that are, you know, like the the ones that we pass forward and we pass along, the way that we treat one another, right? And like you're saying, Tarof, like it can be kind of annoying, this like deference and hospitality. And there's even right a kind of like artificiality to it where it's just like the yeah, yeah. knee jerk sort of a thing that you do without even right. meaning to. But in any case, um, I think it's tough, right? It's- and I'll give a I'll give a I'll give a quick example just for listeners who might not uh be aware so for example i think you mentioned this in the book too let's say you let's say you were to go to iran and you get in a cab and then you you're about you get to your destination and you're about to leave and you ask how much the fare is the cab driver will likely respond something to the effect of don't worry about it it's not even it's not a big deal don't even worry about it which is just a nice nice thing he's supposed he or she is supposed to say you're actually still supposed to pay the fare but if you didn't know that you would just walk out and not pay your fare and that person would chase after you even after they've already told you mm-hmm. no don't worry about it so that, that that's just <laughs> an example of taro for, yes. for people who weren't aware. <laughs> so you know even so like i would define those as still like somewhat of like a superficial attempt to inculcate future generations into like what it means to be an iranian right i right like i don't think i do a great job of this myself but in my heart of hearts, like, what do I strive for is like, I would love that with every generation. So even thinking about mothering my daughter, like, I want her to be aware of politics in Iran, right? And the urgency and the stakes for people who live there. It's not to say I want her to exert undue force from diaspora. That's also messed up and not good too, right? Um, But to like, amplify the struggles and the wishes of the people who live in Iran and to have connections to those people. I think like that's actually really tremendous. To me, that's more important than if we're going to be able to like cook Gorma Sabzi perfectly the way that my mom makes it. Like that's all, that's sure. awesome too. And I would love that. Um, and we, right. you know, try in our own ways to do that. But um, what do I really hope for my daughter and what I think would make it look less like the kind of um, more shallow engagements that I see across immigrant generations, right? For some communities in history versus others is like, I want her to know about the relationship of the United States and Iran and for her to unpack that. I want her, um, and this is what makes it really hard with the Muslim ban with sanctions, right? Is like all of the forces 
from the top down are sort of conspiring to break the chains and to break the bonds and to break the ability for us to have these conversations and know one another and to amplify each other's struggles. And I think if we can't actually get over that, then that is kind of where the bonds will break and where um, over time, like you will see like a more kind of shallow understanding of what it means to be Iranian. Um, and perhaps that ends up being inevitable and that's a function of our privilege, right? Like, I don't know, but um, I'm striving to have my daughter feel proud of being Iranian. That's really crucial to me because I'm Iranian, but my husband is not. Um, and so I want her to like feel really proud about it and to have that connection not be as distant as geography actually makes it and as sanctions makes it and as bans makes it. And, you know, like that it's sad that I may not be able to take her there, although I've been to Iran, like she right. may never get to go. And so it's kind of on yeah. me as her parent to be able to provide opportunities for learning and connection and a kind of authentic heart relationship to that place um, in light of, right, all of these different kinds of systemic barriers. Right. And and it makes me think of a last point I want to ask you about before we wrap up with rapid fire questions is you spoke with many, many Iranians who've flown to Iran and asked them about, you know, the process of, well, I don't feel American enough when I'm in America and I don't feel Iranian enough when I'm in Iran and all these these different things they have to do, like whip out a different passport. You know, they have their Iranian passport, they have the U.S. passport, when to bring out each the different you know, kind of ways you have to change your appearance, appearance, whether you're a guy or a girl who's going. And, you know, it makes me it makes me think like, how do you how do you see that changing as the politics changes? Do you do you see, you know, I, I'll leave it at that because we don't we don't really know what shape this will take. But off of your conversations, what how do you think we evolve from there? Yeah, you know, it was almost like a chapter. I didn't know if I was going to write it or write it the way that I ended up doing it. Because between um, between us, I'm like, this is going to be on a podcast. Other people will listen to it. But it's like, if I can be so blunt, I feel like that's not that interesting, right? Like to be a second generation immigrant and be like, I feel so American when I'm in Iran. And then when I'm in America, I feel so Iranian. It's like, yeah, there's been like, bazillions of movies and novels and things that have like articulated that in between or never enough kind of a predicament right. you know and so like what's so interesting about it um and I think part of it was I wanted to like faithfully report out what young people shared with me but there was this aspect right where like that becomes so damn literal for Iranians that you have to have two passports right so like yes it's the psychological emotional condition of being like two halves that do not make a whole um but then it's also like yeah you have to have this like um weird almost um externalization of this very internal dilemma um and so um honestly i am somewhat pessimistic right now given um uh, kind of the condition of you know we've had like 40 years of incredibly hostile relations between the two countries and right now like the united states really does have iran like by the neck um uh, and so i i feel like 
even though these families that were part of my study, like they had navigated the system for those who were able to become transnational subjects who were going back and forth, right? Like um, that wasn't without struggle, but they found ways to do it. And now um, again, because of <clears throat> sanctions and um, of course, like the situation for dual citizens who um, have, you know, faced a lot of surveillance and, and detention and all kinds of things, the, the stakes are incredibly high for trying to actually live a transnational life and to, to move back and forth between these places. And so I think that's kind of where my next project is actually taking me, is like I'm trying to think through what, um, I, I guess I, a couple months ago, it was like right before bed and I told my husband, Clayton, I was starting to spiral out. I was just having like crazy Corona anxieties and anxieties about all kinds of things. And I think I said to him something like, you know, I always knew relations between US and Iran would be bad, but I didn't think that it would get worse. I think I just fed into this myth of progress that like things are bad now, but they'll have to get better by the time I die or by the time Nilu, our daughter grows up, like they'll be better. And there was some point this past year where I was like, oh no, like there's actually worse and worse, right? There's drones, there's bombs, right. like, <laughs> you know, um, I have to actually right. look at that. And so, yeah, I think my next project is really gonna like address that square on and to say like, what is the implication of that for a third or a fourth generation? Can we even have mm -hmm. a third or a fourth generation when legal immigration from Iran has been ratcheted down to zero under Trump, right? Like, what does it mean? Yeah. Does that mean the social death of our community, right? That if we don't just intermarry right. and, and keep this going, like, it means that it fades away. Um, if you're not replenishing yeah. an immigrant community through the arrival of newcomers, then, you know, what is that going to actually look like? And so that's the, the central question I'm going to be taking up next. And real quick, I have to ask you, just because Tehran is out, the show on Apple and, and I'll shut, I'll make my rapid fire questions shorter to accommodate this one. But you know, this show comes out and I'm sitting watching with my girlfriend who's not Iranian. And she says, doesn't this make Iranians look bad? And the, the quick synopsis is it's about an Israeli Mossad spy who infiltrates Iran and needs to get out. And it's written by Israelis. So of course, you know, Iranians won't, won't be the hero in this situation where they need to get their own spy out. But it was an interesting question. I was like, I don't, I don't think it makes us look any worse. <laughs> um, and it made me think of like, like Maz Jobrani defending Shahs of Sunset being like, this is actually an upgrade for us. It makes us look better because people realize, oh, these guys get drunk just like the rest of us. <laughs> um, they're not all terrorists. So what, what is your, what is your opinion of depictions of Iranians in the media and how that affects policy and, and how people feel about their Iranian identity? Oh, um, I don't know. It's a tough question, right? Like, um, I don't necessarily adhere to this idea that like television is the opiate of the masses of like modern society or anything like that. Um, and so I guess when we're talking about something like this particular show on Apple TV, for me, it's not the question really of like, does this dehumanize Iranians or make Iranians look like villains? I'm that's sort of like a no-brainer almost in a way. It's more like, to what extent does this create empathy among the audience and a kind of naturalization of you in your standpoint as an audience member watching this as like taking a kind of hegemonic position that you are with the US, 
that like this is somehow right like you're in the shoes of the west or an american or name any kind of like allied force right it's sort of like that's the piece that's interesting to me is not so much the vilification of the other but as the act of being the audience and the witness in this and like who the protagonists are and those sorts of things like the way that it creates more nuance or empathy for the american subject or that kind of you know that yeah. side of the equation that side of the relationship right well, we've covered a lot of ground and I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to go real quick into an abridged version of the rapid fire questions. Okay. Uh, firstly, what's an app that you can't live without? Down Dog. Have you heard of it? Oh, no. Okay. It's a paid app. I think it's $39 for the year and it's a yoga app. And like, I am not a yogi. That's not like a thing I even did in the before times before Corona, but um, I can't like recommend it enough. It's so dope. It gives you a different yoga routine every time you use it. So if you're somebody who gets bored with exercise, it keeps you like super on your toes. It's like very, very customizable. I love it. Obsessed. Down dog. Oh, that's perf perfect for our time. Amazing. <laughs> And um, who would you like to play you in a movie about your life? Mm, what an awkward question, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, you know, I think it would be the Iranian-American actress Mojan Marno. I don't know if you know her work from The Blacklist and House of Cards. Um, I actually know her in real life. Um, again, kind of like talking about the book how it introduces you to just a bunch of people that you would have otherwise not known. Um, I ended up like connecting with her because she had picked up my book. And then by last year, I was like in New York for some reason. And she hit me up on Instagram and was like, let's go to this book reading by this Iranian European author, Negar Javadi. So we like, I don't even know Mojan Marno. To me, she's like a celebrity who's on like network show. But then we're like, randomly going to this like book event together <laughs> and she's just so so incredibly intelligent and witty and critical and smart she could have been a sociologist or whatever she wanted to be in in life um so i would be honored if she would play me amazing and what's a song you like to jam to uh um definitely anything from the britney howard solo album she was the lead singer of alabama shakes in 2019, her solo album, Jamie, came out. I think the song I play the most from there is called Tomorrow. Um, definitely, definitely. That'll be your contribution to our Spotify playlist. Yay. So we, we add a guest song rec to each, uh, from each episode, and that'll be your contribution. <laughs> and lastly, where can people find your work and follow you on social media? Um, on Twitter, my handle is at Sosh. So N-E-D-A-S-O-C. Um, and there's a website with all of my like writing and different talks and videos and that kind of stuff, which is Um, But I'm just like highly Googleable. There's way too much information about me <laughs> on the internet. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. And if anybody's curious about the podcast, you can check us out at hdydpod.com or on Instagram at hdydpod. Thank you so much. This was incredible. I've learned so much. This has been so fun. Thank you for having me. I had a good time.